This is Zenbri. Over the past year, we've been flooded with messages from people who have lost their jobs due to the pandemic and forced into entrepreneurship with an uncertain future. So I thought of having someone who epitomizes professional success, Sanjeev Bhikjandani. He's the founder and executive vice chairman of InfoEdge, one of India's first internet companies. InfoEdge owns Nokri.com, Jeevan Sathi, 99 acres, and has strategic investments in tech-based startups like Zomato and Policy Bazaar, among many, many others. Some of us already know this. Sanjeev joined ad agency Lintas for a brief period and then went on to IM Ahmedabad in 1989, then worked as part of the brand management team on Holix, which he quit in over a year to start his own business, as he says. For seven years, he dabbled in many ventures, including salary listings to pharma trademarks, till 1997, when he launched Nokri.com. From a servant quarter, mind you, above his father's garage with 2,000 rupees in his hand. And the rest, as they say, is history. He was awarded a Padma Shri in 2020 and is also a founding trustee of Ashoka University. Thank you very much for joining me on Zen Grain Sanjeev. Thank you so much for inviting me, Shruti. Sanjeev, I've met you as part of a news organization, as a freelancer and now entrepreneur. And I have to say this, you've been exactly the same. Despite how successful you have become over the years, you've always been accessible, humble, and always, always helpful. And you even return calls, which is a first. So first of all, thank you for that. No, no, thank you so much for saying these kind words about me. Yeah, people don't really change, right? Some do, and I'm glad you haven't. But, uh, you know, I want to get started with something really interesting, which is you actually wanted to be Rajesh Khanna when you were 10. I mean, do explain. So everybody daydreams. I was a big daydreamer. You know, I would go in the school bus uh, from home to school and stare out of the window just daydreaming. Right? And so I had various daydreams. You know, when I was 10, I wanted to be a film star. When I was 11, I wanted to be a cricketer. And when I was 12, I said, maybe an, an entrepreneur, although I did not know that word then, I said, I will one day start my own company, my own business. So dreams keep changing, but this one kept returning to me. And when I was in, by the time I was in class 11 or 12, I was, I had this uh, fuzzy yet firm goal that one day, one day I'll start my own company. How do you think that came about? Because did you have uh, people who are entrepreneurs in your family? No, uh, my family is a family of doctors and uh, engineers and uh, all in government service. My brother's an academic, my sister joined the government. I think there are children who will do what the father does or the parents do. And there are children who will never do that. So I kind of figured that, uh, look, I, my father was a doctor in the government. So I said, I will never be a doctor and I won't join the government. So it started from elimination more than anything else. And I guess I zeroed into this. I've also been fascinated by how fast you speak, how articulate and sorted your thoughts are. And I have to ask you, where does that come from? My brother and I both speak very fast. He, of course, has become a professor in the US. So while teaching, in order to be understood by his uh, students, he has had to train himself to speak slower. I uh, have not had that experience and benefit. And therefore, I have not learned to speak slowly, except when I'm very conscious of it, as I am right now, because you pointed it out. I can see that. Influence from parents? Do you think it was excessive reading? I don't know. I don't know. So you've always said that you've had self-belief, right? Again, I want to ask you, where does that come from? Parents? Was it school? See, I was not outwardly confident. I could not go and speak in public. I could not persuade people. But you see, self-belief is in your head. Now, you may or may not express it or communicate it or be articulate about it. But as long as it's in your head and uh, you know, you're clear about what goals you have and where you want to go and how you want to do it, you have self-belief. I believe I can do it. I must try. What happens is you, know, you 
take an action that results in a positive outcome. If a positive outcome happens, then that reinforces your self-belief and self-esteem and you do more of it. It becomes a virtuous circle. So actually self-belief comes from doing according to me, not from thinking. Core of self-belief, there's a foundation of ego. If he can do it, I can do it. But when you try something, take a baby step and it actually works, it reinforces that self-belief. And I think everybody has self-belief. Do they? I think people struggle with it. No, no. If they are struggling with it, maybe they should focus more on the actions and small actions yielding positive outcomes will reinforce self-belief. Hence, people say, just start the day with making a bed or doing little things that you succeed in, which, which reiterates the fact that you're not that useless after all. And, and No, I think, I, th- I think, look, if you have a goal, you can, can you break that down into smaller goals? So if you have a crazy large goal, you know, you're going to be intimidated by it. But if you can break that down into very finite steps and say, okay, I will do these three things over the next one week. Finite, achievable. You will get there. Mm-hmm. And as you get there, you will reinforce your self-belief. What role did school play in, in self-belief? I think huge. I'm the kind of person who has been fortunate enough to have gone to some very good institutions, either for study or for work. I've had great belief in all of these. It's quite possible that no matter which school I had gone, I would have gone to, I would have found, found reasons to believe in it. We, people are like that. You believe in who you are, what you stand for, where you studied, where you worked, your family. I, th- I think self-belief is a natural human trait. I, in my school, and you know, we were proud that it was uh, academically a very good school. We were proud that uh, you know so many smart people here who are all achievers are going to be achievers. We are proud of the alumni the school had produced. Now, it's quite likely, like I said, had I gone any other school, I would have felt the same. But what kind of a student were you? Above average, never brilliant. The class of 45, in good years, I would finish between 5 and 10. In really bad years, maybe in the 20s. But compared to your brother, and, and was there ever a comparison? So look, it's not that I wasn't bright. It's just that I wasn't committed enough to academics. So, But every time I tried, I would do well. So I knew I could do it. It's just that it didn't matter that much to me. My brother would come first in class always. Mm-hmm. He was seven years senior. We went through the same teachers and they would all compare and they would say, your brother was so good. You're... All that would happen. It didn't, it didn't affect me. But clearly you were above average, like you mentioned, because you did clear IIT and chose not to attend, opting to do economics honors at St. Stephen's. Why? It's more complicated than that. When I was in class 11, the country was migrating from class 11 to class 12. Over a three-year window, different states were doing it at different times. So there were some people that were class 12, some people were finishing school. So in order to make it a fair and level playing field, the IIT said, you can join IIT after class 11. You don't need to finish class 12. You can, you can write the exam and join IIT. So which means that in my school, you essentially got two shots at it. Once after class 11, if you didn't go or didn't get in, you could try again after class 12. Of course, you can try after first year college, second year college also, but you know, people didn't want to drop years in that fashion. Mine was the last batch that could do this because after I finished, uh, the whole country had migrated to class 12. Now, obviously, you know, Indians, achievers, parents saying, get into ID now. Why are you waiting one year? You know, everybody would try after class 11, even if you had class 12 to do. So like all my friends and classmates, I wrote the exam after class 11. As luck would have it, I qualified. However, when I went for the counseling, there's a medical test. In that medical test, it turned out that I was partially colorblind, which I had not known earlier. The doctor said, son, you can join. It's okay. It'll go down in a permanent medical record and some careers and departments may be closed, but otherwise it's okay. You can join. By and large, you're okay. Now this by and large, you're okay. I was not comfortable with. And I said to myself, look, if something happens, right? Supposing I have to quit IIT after one or two years, I won't even be class 12 pass. So I will not be able to do, go to any other college. And then I said to myself, 
why don't I continue in class 12? All the good guys in my batch would have already gone to IIT. The junior batch can't write it because they'll have to finish class 12. So there'll be no competition. And from next year, it was becoming a four-year course. It was a five-year course prior. So I won't even lose a year. So I said, this is a smart strategy. And I uh, decided to not join IIT and continue in class 12. In that sense, it was a brave decision, but logical decision. See, we were all programmed. IIT or medicine, IIT or medicine, engineering or medicine. I had not thought beyond IIT. But this incident made me think. And for one year, while I was doing class 12, I kept thinking, you know, why do I want to be an engineer? And I came to the conclusion that, you know what, I didn't really want to be an engineer. I just wanted to be an IITian. I was chasing a, a brand. The act of getting to IIT, I had proved to myself that I can do it. So it's harder to get into IIT than it is to pass out of IIT. So that I've got in, I said, look, I have, I'm okay. I did well in class 12 and I wrote the IT entrance again and I got into IT a second time, but I also got St. Stephen's College Economics. So the truth is I was reasonably clueless about what to study. Many people are, you know, after class 12, it's, it's standard. People, you, you don't really know, right? I didn't know. So I chose St. Stephen's. I said, this is a three-year course. That's a four-year course. I had done science with bio. I didn't know economics. I was not passionate about engineering. I said, look, why do I want to spend four years doing something I'm not passionate about when I can spend three years doing something I'm not, I, don't, I know nothing about? It was as stupid as that. I stumbled into college. I think everybody stumbles into college in India, at least most of us do, right? And the subjects that you sort of choose, uh, you know, are often determined by your marks and not by your interests. That's right. So what did you want to achieve through economics honors? You know, we go for brands, we go for prestige. I was going for that. I didn't know, uh, you know, what economics is actually about. I had never studied economics. So I had spoken to a few seniors of mine. They said, read the budget inside out. There's to be this... this uh, annual publication that would come from the Hindu newspaper, big fat annual document, go through that and read the first three chapters of uh, economics by Paul Samuelson. So I did that. And uh, sure enough, the questions came. What do you know about economics? I said, look, I've read the budget. I've read this and I've read the first three chapters. So they started laughing. So actually, then they asked me questions from there and I knew the answers. I knew exact numbers from the budget. One guy asked me, okay, science with bio, father, a doctor, surely you will write med a medical exam. You, you probably wrote it, didn't get in. Now you're coming here. You will write next year and then waste a seat. I said, no, I don't want to be a doctor. I didn't write the exam. And he says, so IIT I said, yes, sir. I have gotten into IIT twice and I took out both the admission letters. However, if I get sensitive for economics, I would prefer this. So the IIT admission helped me. Why Lintas then? Why advertising? So... My brother had gone to IIT Kanpur seven years before me. Then he went to IIM Ahmedabad. Then after working one year in industry, he quit it and said, I don't want this life. I don't want a corporate career. I want to be in academics. He went to the US to Stanford to do his PhD in economics. And there were three or four of his classmates who did the same thing. There was a lunch at my house when I was just joining college. They had all had the same day for their visa interviews. So they had all come to Delhi. All these four or five people who had graduated from IIM Ahmedabad who had worked for one year and had gone to good engineering college before that. And I asked them, look, why are you doing this? Why are you quitting a corporate career and, and going to do a PhD? He said, look, we made a mistake. We went to do an MBA straight after college, after IIT, without comprehending what the course was and what working in the corporate sector meant. So he says, it's not for nothing that the best business schools in the US demand two to three years minimum work experience before you can get into an MBA program. For us, IIM was an extension of college. But when we began to work, he said, we don't want this life. So we're going to do something we really want to do. And therefore you, I would say, you should do an MBA after working for two or three years so that you know this is what work life is. And then you do an MBA. A, you will gain more from your MBA because you can relate to what happens at the workplace. And B, you'll be very sure that this is the life you want. So you do your MBA and come back into the corporate sector. And that made a lot of sense to me. 
And that's what you did. From Lintas, you went to IIM. We spoke about Holics. You mentioned that while you did what you did at Holics, you still had that niggling thought that you wanted to start your own business. What prompted you in that direction? Was it simply because you didn't want to work for someone? You didn't like authority? What was it? No, I think independence, creativity, authority. Authority is not something I'm really conscious of, but yeah, I love the independence. I was also very fearful. My father was a doctor in the government, monthly salary check, never enough money at home. We're not a wealthy family. There was no family reserves of money. Uh, mom was a homemaker. I was hooked onto that salary check. So I was fearful of leaving my job. So even though I would always say I will do my own company, even at Lintex, I would tell everybody who cared to listen. I said, I will uh, work for two more years and then quit and do my own company. So I was clear on the goal, but when it actually came to executing on it and uh, you know, quitting that salary, it took me six months of tossing and turning and agony and agonizing to actually muster up the courage to quit. I could not walk away from a salary so easily. I think that's the dilemma that most people face, but, but you did it. Doing a startup is now a legit mainstream career aspiration, which uh, a lot of young people are going for, and I think that's healthy. You actually quit to start your own without having something specific in mind or did you? No. So listen, I had a couple of very tiny ideas and we had actually started acting on one or two of those. However, you know, there was no big idea and there was was very little money. I have been to three or four existentialist crises in my life. The first one was when I discovered I was colorblind after getting to IIT. And the next one year after that, what should I do? Which college should I go to? Why do I want to be an engineer? I think existentialist crises are good because they make you think a lot. Otherwise, they're just falling the herd. My second existentialist crisis was I got into IIM after college and I got a job at Lintas. I was in a huge dilemma. Should I go to IIM straight after college or should I uh, work for two, three years as I had planned? I got the job as well. I think it was a confidence or ignorance where I said, look, if I can get in once, I can get in again. But the, the risk was that you won't get in the second time. It's hard to get into IIM. And I said, let me follow the advice of people who've actually been to an IIM and said, it's not so good straight after college. That's the second time I had that crisis. Third was when I had to quit my job. And there I was clear I didn't want a corporate life in a large multinational corporate sector, corporate company. But the actual act of transitioning was the extension crisis. But no, I did not have a big idea. I just said, I don't want this life. The third time when you were quitting your job, when you talk about this existential crisis, was it because you weren't sure where the salary or the money would come from? I was fearful, but I was clear. I see when I was working at Holix, the company the company's name was HMM. Now it's called GlaxoSmithKline Consumer Healthcare. I could see my future. If I work hard and perform well, I can be in that cabin in five years. In 10 years, I can be in that cabin. In 15 years, I can be head of marketing either here or somewhere else. Uh, and that was the limit of my uh, imagination. And then I realized I was 24 when I finished. Time. So at 25, I said, okay, fine. Retirement age is 58. 33 years away. So 33 years later, if I look back on my life and my career, what would I have to show for it? Would I have built something, done something, created an impact, left a legacy, or would I have just been head of marketing? Nothing wrong with head of marketing. Somehow I felt I must do something more meaningful. At the same time, I was afraid of doing a multinational. And I'm a prisoner of my visiting card. And in those days, there were no car loans or home loans. It was a private banking boom. But nowadays, you're a prisoner of your of your visiting card and your EMIs. You can't leave because you've got fixed outputs and then you get stuck. That's not really the job you want to do sometimes. I want to talk about the seven years before Nokri happened. You tried out many things. There must have been periods of inertia, of things not working out, being directionless. Can you describe that period for us? I never lacked for ideas. Because I never lacked for ideas, there was always enough stuff to do. Sure, there were times we didn't make money, I couldn't take a salary. As long as you were frugal and you kept your costs low, the company didn't go under because no matter how much revenue you did, it was above your cost. You just couldn't pay yourself, that's all. So in the first 10 years after quitting my job between 1990 and 2000, there were about six years where I could not take a salary. What I had done was I had gone and knocked on the doors of all the... See, business schools were then beginning to boom in India. There was this whole proliferation of management schools. So I began to offer myself 
myself as visiting faculty on Saturdays and Sundays, and sometimes on even weekdays evenings to business schools in and around Delhi to get an honorarium that could, in a month, add up to two and a half thousand rupees, and I could subsist on that, and that worked out well. I, I want to take you back to 1997. You had many ideas, and and Nokri was one idea. Tell us how you actually took that idea and you followed it through and you built what you did. In hindsight, today what I believe is, and I did not know it then. I acted on it, but did not follow it as as a conscious strategy. Successful businesses are built on deep customer insights. So when I was working in HMM, we were about seven or eight executives who'd sit in an open hall, and therefore I could see what they were doing and hear what they were saying on the phone. And I noticed something very strange: that when the office copy of Business India would come in, everybody would read it from the back, because in those days there were thirty-five to forty pages of appointment ads at the back of Business. Yeah. It was the number one appointment ad medium for managers. Now this is 1989-90. This is pre-liberalisation. There were only two FMCG MNCs headquartered in Delhi, Nestle and HMM, and they would not hire from each other. So if you wanted FMCG, if you wanted MNC, if you wanted Delhi, if you wanted marketing, not sales, which means head office, you were already in the best place you could be because Nestle would not hire you. You have to Delhi chhod ke jao, ya marketing chhod ke jao, ya MNC chhod ke jao, ya FMCG chhod ke jao. But in marketing, these three were considered blue chip FMCG. MNC marketing. And uske upper, if you want Delhi, then you will not switch. And yet they would all look at the jobs. And I said, this is weird behavior. They're not going to apply for any job. They're earning a good salary. They're handling a decent brand. And people pick up magazines to read articles. Or journalists look at them, but people are looking at the ads. Not, not reading the articles. Then I realized that jobs are a high-interest category of information. I didn't know what to do with this insight. This is pre-internet. This is pre-PC on every desk, pre-laptop, pre-everything, pre-mobile phone. So yeah, but this became one of those file and forget kind of insights. In '96, six years later, I had quit my job and tried my hand at 20 different things. When I saw the internet for the first time, this insight came back to me and said, and I said to myself. Let's just take jobs from newspapers and magazines around the country, rehash them in your own words, and put it up on the internet and see what happens. So Nokri started an experiment. I went to Central News Agency in uh, Madras Hotel in Connaught Place. I went through all the newspapers and magazines there and figured out which ones carry appointment ads on which days of the week. And I made a whole schedule. That on Mondays I want this, on Tuesdays I want that, on Wednesdays I want this. Plus I want this magazine, plus this, plus that, plus that. We would get the appointment ads into our office. We would rehash them in our own words, our own data structure, and we would compile a database of jobs from published sources. And we put it up on the net, and we called it Nokri. And because jobs are a high-interest category of information, traffic began to come. We had no money to advertise nothing. This is '97. There was no venture capital. When we launched, there were only 14,000 internet accounts in the country. Must have been a couple of like users with shared accounts in offices. But it looked like a large number to me, and that's how we launched. Gradually, people found out about us, the recruiters, and they began to call up. Six months later, I got a call from a mid-sized auto components company in Pune. I forget the name, and said, "Listen, I am so and so, the CEO of so and so company. You have taken my jobs from these people in the past. I have got responses, but I've got I've got six jobs that I have not advertised. If I send them to you, will you list them?" I said, "Yes, sir, but you will have to pay us for it." How much? Again, split-second decision. My mouth was coming out. Sir, three hundred fifty rupees a job. And he says, fine, I'm sending you a demand draft of 2100 rupees along with the job details. And two days later, the courier came and we'd got our first revenue. And uh, I mean, so much a pricing strategy. And 350 rupees of job listing remained the price for a Nokri job listing for the next 10 years. And that came in a flash of a second. But now you hear of startups with comprehensive business plans. You obviously sound like you did not have it laid out in the beginning. No, we did not have a plan. We had a back of the envelope calculation. I had said to myself that, look, if I can get 
1000 companies to give us one job listing every month and charge 500 rupees for it that is 5 lakhs a month that's 60 lakhs a year and if you can achieve this in 3 years time the company would have gone up 5x in revenue because our last revenue had been 12 lakhs in the year and we were breaking even sometimes i was taking salary sometimes i wasn't so i said agar ye 5x ho jaye 60 lakh it's a huge achievement that was the back of the envelope costing i said okay fine now what is the lowest cost we can do this in because we can't spend too much money we don't have money and that's how we started then it became okay so it's 350 rupees a single job listing why don't we sell annual subscriptions 6000 rupees unlimited number of jobs from your company for one year now how does that work it works very simply if you get 6000 rupees a year you get a lot of jobs if you get a lot of jobs you get a lot of traffic so that works on the side our costs were working out to about 1 lakh 80000 a month and i said if you can have one subscription a day at 6000 rupees we will break even so i kept it very simple in my head 6000 rupees looks like a no brain price 6000 rupees we can sell by direct mail the guy will send a check in advance which are 30000 rupees you have to go and make a sales call and what we did was put up job listings from newspapers for 6 months we just took out all the old data and had a mailing list of 3000 hr managers we sent them all a letter and said This is the internet. This is Nokri. You have advertised in the past. We have got some responses referring to us. Maybe you know about our site. For six thousand rupees a year, you can send us jobs, and we'll put them up. The format is attached, and sales began to happen. And the math worked very well because within a couple of years, we were doing three lakhs a month. So we were breaking even. I wasn't taking a great salary. Sometimes wasn't taking a salary. There was now. You know, direct money expenditure also added on. But our goal was survival and break-even, and saying that listen, next year we'll grow, we'll make a profit, it'll be fine. I'll take a salary. So when you're bootstrapping and starting out, and there was no venture capital in India those days, we never thought of venture capital. You know, it's about breaking even on through revenue and making a profit through revenue, being frugal. Otherwise, you will not break even. But you've always maintained that you focused on sales, like that was the core area. We we had to because if we didn't get customer money, we would not survive because we had no investments. There was no choice. Some people genuinely believe that an entrepreneur's capacity for risk taking leads them to success. What do you say about that? So I think that's a myth. There's a difference between risk taking and being risk prone. Entrepreneurs are risk averse. All rational people are risk averse. Entrepreneurs are risk averse. They will try and achieve their goals with the least possible risk. It's just that if their goals are different from somebody else, there may be a higher level of risk in trying to achieve that goal. But they will still take. the lowest risk path to the goal or sensible entrepreneur should do that and i have always maintained that the difference between a good entrepreneur and a great entrepreneur a great entrepreneur is somebody who is successful for 30 years 40 years 50 years builds an organization and lasts and is market leader it's not just about opportunity identification so opportunity identification is the easier part the real issue is how well you understand manage and mitigate risk because over a 20 30 year period you go through three or four or five or six business cycles ups and downs boom bust when you're booming when you're in a boom you know everything going great investors are backing you you got pots of money but what you do then will determine how you survive a bust right so if you build up unsustainable costs aren't profitable because when the bust happens typically investor money dries up right? and then it's very painful for companies that have built up wrong cost structures so it's about keeping your head in a boom and doing the sensible thing and not taking risks that will make you look silly in a bust that will determine how you survive for 30 years or 40 years and therefore how you manage risk understand risk mitigate risk comprehend risk that matters a lot and that is what differentiates great entrepreneur from good entrepreneur and that really leads me to the next question competition and how did you handle that dot com bust 
So we had bootstrapped for three years when the bust happened in the year 2000. We knew the value of money. We had a very good reality check. We knew the moment we got VC money, we knew we don't deserve this money and we don't deserve this valuation. But as a bubble happening, we've got it. We are fortunate. Let's take it. And we immediately put it in fixed deposit in the bank. This was the seven crore that you talk about. I see, I see. Seven point three crores. So we got, we got lucky, right? We got it one week before the meltdown. The truth is when market corrections happen for six months, believers are, de- are in denial. Temporary correction, it'll come back. You know, all that talk happens months. And we had, I know I had a bootstrap for 10 years and had not taken salary for six years. We really knew the value of money. And we said, so do not spend it foolishly. Do not assume you get next round. Do not assume valuation. Do not assume anything. So we're very careful how we spent it. And we we did not spend a lot in advertising. We simply said, we will grow the company the hard way, new products, new technologies. So we moved the office from my father's residence to sector five, Noida back lanes, open open drains in the middle of rubber and chemical factories at a 12 rupee per square foot monthly rent. Other dot coms were at 140 rupees per square foot rent in South Delhi. We were clear that we And we can't spend. We can't spend foolishly. At the same time, you had competition that was spending a huge amount on marketing. When you're faced with competition, and I think many entrepreneurs might be going through that, where you have a competition which has lots of VC money now. How do you keep your focus on your product and your business? Our strategy was informed by customer insight. What is that customer insight? That jobs are a high interest category of information. Therefore, you need to aggregate many, many, many jobs. In order to aggregate many, many jobs, we were taking jobs free from all published sources. Plus, we were charging people to this job that they had not advertised. And the pricing was so low and the annual subscription was so useful that we always had a, the largest number of jobs. If you had the largest number of jobs, you got the most traffic. Our competition were not informed by that insight. So where we had a single listing for 350 rupees, they had a single listing of 3,500 rupees. They would never get enough jobs. So you advertise because you have the money, you get the traffic, the traffic doesn't come back because they don't find the jobs. We don't advertise, but we got the jobs. So it's because we had that customer insight that informed our pricing strategy, that your goal is to aggregate the most number of jobs. We were the only people taking jobs free from published sources. We just had to have the most number. Of, we were chasing that one goal, most number of jobs. So really it's about being close to the customer. So if you have better understanding of the customer than your competition, and you are acting on that better understanding in a manner that your competition is not, you have an unfair advantage. We had raised 25% of the money that our competitor had, but we survived the meltdown because we were acting on the basis of this insight. So it's really important to stay close to the customer. The better you know your customer, better you understand the customer, the better insight you have on what will work and what will not work, the more you will be able to innovate in a relevant manner. But did you ever go through a period where you came close to shutting the business? There was a period when uh, around 9-11, you know, where uh, we had 16 months of money left. Uh, we had no hope of an extra round of funding. And our salary bill was four times our monthly revenue. All other costs extra. It looked a little tricky then. But, you know, we were able to lift sales. And there again, it was a sort of epiphany. So Hitesh Oberoi, who's my business partner, the current CEO, that time was head of sales and marketing. And uh, we were selling a direct mail. And he came to me and said, listen, why don't we hire four salespeople who'll go out and meet people and let's see what happens. I said, sure thing. Let's try it. So he hired four salespeople in Delhi. And we discovered in three months time that the average salesperson is selling 50,000 rupees a month. And the total cost of a salesperson, salary, conveyance, mobile phone bill, sales incentive, office rent allocated, worked out to 22,000 rupees. There is no variable cost. You can list an extra job on the side and no extra cost. He or she was already delivering a 28,000 rupee margin per month. The sales number was headed north. And we said, hey, this is cool. We had found what I call our repeatable profitable unit. 
Each salesperson would make a profit on his own total cost. That profit will go towards differing corporate overheads. So we said, let's just keep adding salespeople around the country on the same approach. And we began to add salespeople in our open branches. And that's what took the company to break even. We found a repeatable profitable unit. I think every startup must seek its repeatable profitable unit. Repeatable profitable unit. This is an important lesson to take away. You've spoken about frugality and and it's something that you keep stressing on and your focus is on sales. Now you have situations like downturns. We face downturns. We've also seen the pandemic unpredictable, but possible scenarios even in future. So what would be the three important lessons for entrepreneurs out there? Businesses should take away from situations like these. Pandemic has been tough. Because supply chains were disrupted, business has been shut, customers have gone away, workers have gone away. I'll give you the example of our company. We have come through the pandemic relatively unscathed. We have not let go of a single person. We have not cut anybody's salary. And it's because we had the luxury of Nokri being a 55 to 60% EBITDA margin business that we could do that. So Nokri billings degrew 44% in quarter one last year. Like collections degrew. That was a significant pullback, but we were still profitable. And why were we so profitable? Because we had built such a great product that we were able to charge the prices we do and get the number of clients we had that we could make that kind of profit. And how do we build such a great product? Because we had a great team and we were informed by customer insight. So innovation, great people, focus on customer over the last two decades, 23 years, had led to a situation where Nokri was in a very strong position. So we could afford to do that. So this was 23 years of effort, the culmination of it paying off with continuous improvement all the time. You've seen a lot of companies go down in the past two decades. What are the common mistakes that you are seeing that they are making? So I think if people don't talk to the customer enough, see a lot of young startups don't have the ability to generate revenue at the top tables. You have great product guys, you have great tech guys, but do you have a great sales guy? Right? I think that's important. Because I always tell young companies that the customer's money is more important than the investor's money. And the reason is that if you're getting the customer's money and you're getting it repeatedly from the same customer, and if you're getting it at a price that's higher than your cost, then chances are you have a viable business so long as you can get enough customers. And if you get the customer's money first, the investor's money will almost certainly follow. Because investors love to invest behind companies that are getting the customer's money. But if you get the investor's money first, there's no guarantee the customer's money will come. Who knows whether the customer wants to buy what you're selling or what you're making. Because getting the investor's money means getting a great PowerPoint, making a good pitch and impressing two MBAs across the table. But getting the customer's money is a lot harder. The customer is not your mother or your father, your uncle or your aunt. We're going to do you a favor. And certainly not buying a second time. You can buy a first time on a promise. But if you don't live up to the promise, you'll not buy a second time. And therefore, I keep saying, get the customer's money. The investor's money will come. But if you get the customer's money, you may not want the investor's money. You may not need it. But was that the potential that you saw in, in the companies that you have invested in? Whether it's Zomato, whether it's Policy Bazaar? So they were very early stage. So Policy Bazaar, we invested on a PowerPoint. But we were able to quickly assess hey, this thing will have legs. This thing will work. Because there's such a compelling value prop there. There's no competition in the market. So, Yashi Dhaya, the founder of Policy Bazaar, came and sat opposite my, in my cabin, opposite my table, opposite my desk. And he says, I'm willing to bet you're paying 60% more than you need to for your car insurance. I, could, I didn't believe that. I said, don't be silly. I said, you know, all insurance is the same. So, you take out your insurance papers. I took them out of my backpack. Say, car year, how many kilometers done, we went and checked out the car, driver driven, owner driven, any history of making an insurance claim, took about 8, 10 data points, and he produced 10 quotes. And sure enough, I was paying 40% higher. But rather, the lowest quote was 40% lower than mine. And I was shocked. He says, there is huge variation pricing of insurance for the same policy for the same person across various companies. We don't have a way to compare. So I immediately knew this was sell. And therefore, I said, we back you. Zomato had launched and was doing some small revenue, 1 lakh a month. But 
we discovered that the broker had himself removed it because he also seen uh, you know stuff on social media against it i think over here you got to be sure what you stand for what your brand means and what your policies are in terms of what listings are okay and what are not okay now this thing went on on national tv i remember it was the day after diwali and i was sitting at home when i saw this going on facebook that there's this listing i personally sat that whole sunday and everybody who had mentioned it on facebook everybody who had commented on it on facebook everybody who had done a like on facebook i sent individual messages to everyone saying that listen uh, this is not our policy people are free to do what they want it has been removed uh, we don't agree with this kind of listing and i think timely action from senior management being transparent being honest we were sincere we were honest and many of those uh, who were unhappy on expressed on facebook were muslims and i was writing to each other we don't believe in this and yes after it came on tv we realized that the minorities commission has taken note of it so we ourselves proactively went to the minorities commission and met them and explained what had happened and the action we taken i showed all the facebook replies that i had given and we said we are changing our policies we will inspect every listing before it goes up which is what we did and they were satisfied with that so i think if you're sincere if you're honest if you're reasonable others will be reasonable with you and then there was this hari saru ad where you got a legal notice sir report one report two but sir shut up sir hotel reservation desk on line 2 Yes, I would like to book a table for two. Sure, sir. Pull side. Your name, sir? Hari Sadu. Uh, what, sir? Hari Sadu. Sir, may I? Hmm. 
Yes, write down. Hari Sadhu. H for Hitler, A for Arrogant, R for Rascal, I for Idiot. That's right. Now write Sadhu. S for... Uh, shameless. Huh? The Hari Sadhu ad was quite well known. It, it did well for us and was becoming a very, very good ad. When suddenly, you know, we got a legal notice. I was traveling for about 10 days. So it had come on my desk and nobody responded to it because it was on my desk. And by the time we responded to it, I got in touch, you know, the press had picked it up. So it became this big issue. The allegation was that my son, who's 11 years old, is uh, getting teased in his school because his name is Hari. Some of the media contacted the school principal and the school principal went on record saying this is not true. And they've never brought it up with me. I would have stopped if the boy is being teased in school about that. I would have had it stopped immediately. So that gave us belief that, look, this is not a genuine complaint. And so that gave us sort of... Uh, I think that we, we have done nothing wrong okay. and nothing came of it. I think a lot of companies now just switch off and, and wait for that entire controversy to pass before saying anything. You know, that's the other way to also look at it. I'm winding down now. I just want very quick answers from you. You did not build a business to sell, but to grow. Why? Look, I think great companies uh, last 100 years, 25 years, 50 years. East India Company lasted 250 years. Of course, it was helped by government monopoly. But if you look at Google, look at Microsoft, great companies are a lifetime's effort for some people. The core team, the founder, whoever. And great companies often outlive the founder. It depends what your goals and motivations are. I wanted to build a brand. We should build a company. We should build an institution that is relevant for a long, long, long time and creates value for its customers, its employees, and its shareholders for a long, long, long time. How much do you rely on instinct or gut feeling and how much on numbers and data? I think we need both because it is numbers that will hone your gut feeling. You overlay judgment on top of numbers. But has there been a situation where you have defied the numbers and, and gone with a gut feeling? No, it's hard to define numbers as long as the numbers are authentic. Unless you have some insight which tells you, hey, these numbers don't tell the whole story. When we were very, very young as a company, we didn't have too many numbers to go with. I knew that jobs are a high interest category of information because I had observed eight of my colleagues building business in there from the back. That resonated with my gut. But had I done a survey of 1,000 people saying that, uh, you know, are you interested in jobs, knowing about jobs? No, I had not. I just knew it. That's nicely put. What is work-life balance for you? Can there ever be work-life balance? So look, the truth is when you're doing a startup now, it's very hard to make a startup succeed unless you are obsessing about it 24 by 7 because it's difficult. There's a guy called uh, Sagar Daryani, who's the founder of Wow Momo. I once was in a panel discussion with him and he was asked this question, what's your view on work-life balance? And his answer was very good. He said that there is, if you're doing a startup, there is no such thing as work-life balance. There's only work-life integration. And now in this day and age of work from home and Zoom, I think that has come true for everybody and not just for startup founders. Are you a warrior? I am, but less so now. I think the first 10 years of doing a startup, maybe 15 years, you had to worry about every little thing. But gradually as the company became more stable, grew larger, mm. there were others to share the word. Uh, my tendency to worry has gone down a bit. Do you attribute your success to hard work, luck, or keeping your eye on the ball? I think you need all three. You have to work hard. If you work hard and don't, don't get lucky, you won't make it. But a friend of mine, a classmate of mine from college, uh, put it very, very well. Niren Chaudhary, he used to be the CEO of Yaman India. Now he's in the US. And I had gone to give a talk at his organization in Delhi about six, seven, eight years ago. In one of the things I mentioned that, look, I got lucky also. So he interjected and said, listen, let's discuss luck. And he said something very, very insightful. He said, luck is about being in the right place at the right time. But if you're in enough places enough times, sooner or later, you will be in the right place at the right time. 
So keep trying. Be persistent. Be resilient. So if you're really lucky, you get lucky in five years. If you're moderately lucky, ten years. If you're really unlucky, you get lucky in fifteen years. But keep trying. So luck matters. Yes. Now uh, the important thing is you will get lucky sometime. Life lessons that you have learned along the way that are not taught anywhere. It's pretty common, commonly said that. You got to be a great people's person if you want to build a good business because you can't do it alone. You need people with you. So an entrepreneur has to be a personal magnet for talent. You have to be the kind of person people want to work with, and that's how you'll attract people to work with you, even though you don't have money. They will believe in you. They will believe in your what you're trying to do. You'll find common cause. And if you are able to be that personal magnet for talent, I think that's half of success is achieved. How do you balance IQ and EQ? You need both. It's the same question about numbers and judgment. IQ will get you started. IQ will help you take the right technical decisions, but EQ will make sure that you carry it forward substantially. And uh, something connected to that, as founding trustee of Ashoka University and as a parent yourself, what are the tools parents can teach kids to make them mentally and emotionally resilient? We have what we are seeing today is too many distractions, too much social media, too much instant gratification. Kids are in a hurry. The truth is, it takes a long, long time to achieve anything significant. One of my favorite songs is a song by Billy Joel called Vienna. मैं कई लोगों को गाना सुनाया है कि सुन लो और शब्द समझो स्लो डाउन यू क्रेजी चाइल्ड यूर सो एम्बिशियस और जूवनाइल टेल मी फ्यूर सो स्मार्ट वाई यू स्टिल सो अफ्रेड एंड सो ऑन माई फर्स्ट जॉब वी हैड सीनियर डायरेक्टर इन द कंपनी एट लिंटेस नेम ऑफ स्टैडली पिंटो रिटायर्ड मनी इज गोल्ड इज इन बैंगलोर नाउ एंड यूज टू कीप सेपल गो टू हेम एंड से आई वॉन्ट दिसमेंट आई वॉन्ट दिस promotion now and he would say all good things will come to all good people in the fullness of time so i would take patience thank you for sharing your knowledge and of course i'm going to end with what you've just said which is it takes a while to achieve anything and for people who look at your success and think it happened overnight know that you've been through enough existential crises lots of failures lots of challenges to achieve what you have and come out listen listen we are, we we are small people i'm a very small person think of the greatest people in history okay think of the indian freedom movement mahatma gandhi jawaharlal nehru sardar patel all the leaders mahatma gandhi came back to india in 1915 independence was 32 years later it took time think of jesus christ and the years he spent in galilee think of uh, the ramayana So you have to spend time. Very often, you achieve after some struggle and some years of struggle. Whether in life or business, have patience. Keep working at it. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining me on Zen Brain. Thank you.